Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Louisa Evans. She is a therapist and a hypnotherapist and was no stranger to helping others quit their unwanted habits, but when it came to her own relationship with alcohol, she really struggled. Louisa is a fantastic ambassador in the sober community and is now celebrating over seven months of wonderful sobriety. And don't forget that this week's episode is going to be the last one for a couple of weeks when I'll be back with lots of amazing new guests. In other news, I'm so excited to announce that with the incredible support of my management team, Ethical Creatives, we have compiled a How to Stop Drinking in 30 Days online course. And it consists of 10 modules of video content where I discuss the various different subjects to help you through, including dealing with cravings and triggers, what to say to your friends, and of course, sober socialising. And I also teach you how not to romanticise alcohol and talk about the huge benefits of a positive mindset. There is also the added content of a 90-page downloadable workbook for you to fill in along the way. I've priced it at a really reasonable cost and it's available on my website at davidwilsoncoaching.com or on my bio at Sober Dave. I really think you're going to love it. Right, on to the episode now. Thanks for all your support. I hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Louisa. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. Uh, It's a real joy to have you on today, so thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. And don't be nervous. It's fine. Everyone says that at the beginning. But once we get stuck into your story, it just flow. And then you say at the end, I can't believe how quick it went. I know. I'm hoping for that. (laughs) Anyway, as you know, I'm really nosy on behalf of the listeners as well. And we always love to uh, hear people's stories starting at the beginning. So where where was uh, you brought up? So I was um, born and brought up in a place called Hartbury in Gloucestershire. It was, uh, my childhood was just idyllic. It was just lovely. Um, loads of fields and outbuildings. We lived on a farm and I couldn't have asked for anything better. I was an only child. Um, I still am. Um, and my parents just doted on me. I just... I wouldn't, you know, that typical spoiled only child. I wasn't spoiled, but I just didn't want for anything. And I just felt very loved and very looked after. So, yeah, I can't ever say, I I look back and and think, why did I go on to have some of the issues that I did when I think about my childhood? Because I didn't have any trauma. Mm, It's an interesting subject, actually, that you might come across because you're a therapist um, and I certainly come across it's about the big T's, little T's that 
you know, something can happen in your childhood that can make you lose confidence or they don't always have to be a big trauma, do they? It can give you lack no. of confidence or an experience that can make you the way you are. And I think that's that's quite interesting because I do remember in primary school a teacher, a headmaster, um, who just didn't like me for some reason. And my parents went to parents' evening and I was expecting the glowing report. I was, must only have been about seven or eight. And I was expecting this glowing report and I was all excited. And they sat me down and basically said, look, you know, you're going to have to calm down. You're going to have to focus. Um, this teacher had basically told them that if they didn't take me in hand, I was going to be completely out of control. And it terrified them. They didn't have any experience of parenting. They didn't know what they were doing. None of us do. And it absolutely terrified them. And it rocked my confidence then. Really, from then on, I always had that inner doubt because I do have, I'm very energetic. I'm very enthusiastic, um, over the top, whatever you want to call it. Um, I've got a racing mind. I'm always onto the next project. I'm always trying to do things. And I think that, that just for some, they love it. Mm. And for other people, it, it, it scares them. And for years then I dulled myself down. I didn't want to be too successful. I didn't want to be too loud, too out there, too happy. And so I don't know how much of my experience was me then bringing things on myself so that I was smaller. I had an eating disorder. I ended up with OCD. I couldn't leave the house at one point. Um, I ended up with um, anxiety, depression. Oh, that's awful. And, and do you think that all stems from that feeling because if you say you were you know when you say doted on it does sound spot but it sounds to me that you were emotionally secure when you was a yeah. child and for someone to come in and say actually there's a there's a huge fault in your child's behavior here and you need to address it is enough to rock anyone's world right that's a really good way of putting it um i did actually feel incredibly secure and safe and loved and that's what everybody should feel. Um, and I think it's always worried and upset my mum, actually, when I talk, because I've had to talk very openly with my mum. Sadly, my dad passed away um, seven years ago. Um, but I've had to talk very openly with my mum in doing all of this stuff in the sober community. Mm. Initially, I wanted to do it anonymously. And then I realised that wasn't my style. But I had to sort of say to her, you do realize how bad this got for me, don't you? You do realize how bad it was for me in my twenties and in my teenage years. And she didn't. Mm. So she listened to the audiobook the first time and went, I, I've really enjoyed getting to know you. That's interesting because my dad um, looked at my book as well. And he said to me, I honestly had no idea. I, I kept it all because I was embarrassed as well. And I didn't want him to know that about me. You know, it, it would have upset him. So I kept it in. And then, of course, I write a, a book and <laughs> it's out there for the world to see, you know, and, and it's tough. And my son as well. I did an interview with Dan O'Reilly, who's Dapper Laughs. And like he's in an era that ev all his mates, everyone knows Dapper Laughs, right? And there's me recording a podcast, um, which was huge, my episode. And it triggered him. It was like... You know, like, it's really upset me, Dad. One, because 
of how you must have felt, but two as well, it brings back memories for me as well, you know. So when we're out in this community and you're as honest as we are, it can have side effects on parts of your life that you've kept quiet for so long. I don't have much family. Um, obviously, I'm an only child. My my father died. My mum is about, but she we don't have any extended family. Her side, nor you know, I've got a, a few relatives. My father's side, but my mum didn't speak to any of her family for for years. Um, and so it was only her I had to worry about. But then your brain goes, hang on a minute, what about all your clients? What are they going to think? What about uh, people you went to school with? What are they going to think? You know, and so I think there's always somebody that's going to stop yeah. you sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Funny enough, Louise, is someone messaged me the other day. I've known her since I was 13 and she had an operation in hospital and she read my book in hospital and she said, I feel so guilty that I didn't support you. Oh, no. You know, and it was a lovely, lovely message, you know, a mm-hmm. real heartfelt message that she's known me from before I was drinking all the way to now. So it's true. So moving on, at what age did you start drinking and why do you think, you, was it just a social thing and it wasn't really an issue or was it for confidence? What was it? I think I, I drank to um, still my mind. To calm my energy because it made me less in your face. <laughs> um, and I just think I used it. Um, but I, it wasn't social. And this is the thing for me is that I hear people talking about, uh, drinking alone being their warning sign at the end of their drinking. And for me, I've always drunk alone. I didn't go out. So to sort of explain, um, my parents ran a filming business. And I started filming weddings when I was 14 and I was sort of in a suit and I was told to say I was a little bit older than I was and it was the family business. And so every Saturday I was working. So when my friends were starting to party, starting to go out on a Friday or Saturday night, I wasn't, I wasn't doing that. So I didn't socialize like that. Um, I then met my first husband at 16 wow. at a wedding. He was 27. Um, and he was a sensible chap. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. Um, I joked he was my third parent and we just fell into this kind of sort of almost, I didn't want to say boring, but this kind of monotonous kind of relationship where we just ticked boxes. We bought a house. We, um, got engaged. We got married. And then the next thing on the list was children. And so my drinking really started once I was 20. So I'd had the odd dabble of drinking in my teenage years and, and had bad experiences of being sick and things like that. But it didn't, it wasn't a normal teenage experience, I don't think. And I didn't go to university. I think if I'd have gone to university, I dread to think how bad I'd have got. It would have been no holds barred, no rules, no nothing. So it's probably a good thing I was in the family business and I stayed at home. But yeah, I think with with my first husband, I was just in the nicest way bored. Nothing wrong with him. We just shouldn't have been together. And it just, we drifted into this long-term relationship. And then I had uh, miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage in my 20s. And I had infertility investigations. And I had to come to terms with the fact that I probably wasn't going to be able to have children. And that was a big thing. And I used to then drink a bottle of wine a night alone Mm. because he didn't drink. He'd go to bed early. He didn't necessarily approve, I don't think. 
but I would drink. And all my friends did that though. You know, it was so normal to have a bottle of wine. It was Ladette culture. I wasn't out down the pub drinking myself into a stupor. I was sat watching Coronation Street at home. It was so sensible, so civilized. And I'd seen that to a degree with my parents and their bottle of wine that they shared as a child. And it sort of just seemed very sophisticated. behavior, isn't it? And what decade was this? So I was in my 20s. So this would be into my into the 1990s there. Right. So yeah. Zoe Ball, Ladette Culture, yeah. Sarkox. Sex in the City. The yeah. Oh, Sex in the City. That was my favourite show. I used to drink yeah. watching that. Yeah. So um, it was it was very much influenced by that culture. And I think we are influenced by what's around us. Yeah. Which is why this drinking culture is so toxic. Massively, you know, like I did a podcast with Janie Holiday, and we we went through the decades of the bullet points of how we're so influenced, as you say, the Ladic culture, and the, and the latest one, of course, was the lockdown thing, which has literally spiraled so many people out of control with their drinking, you know. But also in that era, I remember walking into the supermarket, and lots of women um, or men have a bottle of wine in their basket and a ready meal. And maybe a bunch of flowers or something. And the men ate cans of Stella and some crisps and a takeaway curry, you know. So I think the drinking at home has been the thing as well since the pubs banned smoking as well. Because there was a huge influx of people then going to Asda's and buying three bottles of wine for 10 quid and thinking, yeah. blimey. I've got a right result here. Yeah, I used to do that. I used to do that. I then, um, so that marriage lasted, I think the whole relationship was about 10 years. Uh, and once I realized I wasn't going to have children or I thought I couldn't have children, I thought I can't stay in this because I was box ticking, thinking if I did that next thing, I'd be happy. And I wasn't happy. And the bigger house, the better car. And and at one point I was driving a Jag, in a living in a cottage and thinking, I don't care if I have to live in a cardboard box. I can't do this anymore. Um, and so... Straight off the back of that relationship, that marriage, I then met my second husband, who was the polar opposite. And it was, I think I just said to myself, sod these sober people. You know, they're, you know, they're boring. I'm not doing that. I want a drinking partner. And boy, did I find one. Um, and that was the three for tenor that you mentioned. We'd go and get three for tenor. And then we'd have um, a bottle each and maybe share the third bottle if it was a weekend or something. Um, we'd go to the pub and drink. Stella was our drink of choice. Um, I would drink pints. Uh, and we all, he just thought it was great that he'd found somebody that wasn't going to nag him. And so did I. And so the drinking was social then. It, it went from in the house to out of the house and it became an activity. And a new, a new lease of life for you in a way, if you was in this suppressive relationship and you were bored and then you've met this character, then you're going out again. And you're enabling each other as well. You, you've Massively. got this liquid relationship. and God, we get on so well. And he loves a drink. You know, this polar opposite thing is like dangerous. Yeah. and But the downside of that was that it was toxic. Yeah. And it was a toxic. And in my 20s, I always say my 20s were very negative. I was very negative. Um, I was very down on myself, very depressed. My 30s, I then spent all of the decade of my 30s working on my mental health. And I did so much and I solved 95% of the problems. And then in my 40s, I trained and I started to help others. But in that negative bubble of my 20s, everything, you know, woe is me. 
I was just, I can't have children, you know, with my Pinot Grigio in my hand. Ooh. You know, and, and I'm not belittling that because that's an absolutely massive thing. I spent decades thinking that I couldn't have children and that was something I'd always wanted as a child. Um, but it was very toxic. The relationship was two years long. The marriage was seven weeks long. Um, and that was an alcohol fueled evening on his part that I asked him to leave and I never looked back. So yeah, it was just, I think alcohol certainly didn't help. I think we were both very insecure as well. So I have no malice towards anyone, but it just wasn't meant to be. Um, but I then was left, well, what do I do now? I've tried the sensible sober person. I've tried the outgoing party animal and that didn't work. Right. Well, I'll just, I'll just keep my powder dry now. I'm just going to stay single. I'm just going to date. I didn't have very long term relationships or I just spent time on my own. And I actually had my eldest daughter with quite a short relationship. It was only about a year long. And I mean, she was just a blessing, absolute blessing out of the blue. And it proved like, I suppose, like I did, she proved me wrong. I could have children. Um, and I had her when I was about 31, 32. So that was the start of me going, come on now, sort this out. And I did. I did. Um, I did a lot of work on myself. I went to therapy. I had NLP. I had hypnotherapy. I had coaching. I had mentoring. I had, if I could sort of find a way to solve this problem, I was going to solve it. And then in amidst that, whilst I was still a single mum, that was when my dad died. And that pulled the rug from all of us because he was only 68. Um, and he was how just my best friend. He just amazing, amazing man. And we'd worked together for years and years and years. Um, we got on so well. Um, and he just went to sleep one night and didn't wake up. He had a heart attack in his sleep. Um, so it was completely unforeseen. He wasn't poorly. And it just, when it's, when I say it rocked our world, he did everything for my mum. And so, although my mum's a very capable person, she'd kill me if I didn't say that, but she didn't know how to, I don't know, sort out a mobile phone contract or tax the car or he would always drive everywhere. So although she could drive, she didn't have any confidence driving. And I ended up having panic attacks. Um, after that, about six months after I didn't process the grief, I probably drank more. I can't remember. I think there were evenings of drinking more, but I was closing down two businesses at that point. I was dealing with all of the, all of the, the admin that happens after somebody dies unexpectedly. And I just didn't process the emotions at all. Um, I looked after my mum. Yeah, I was going to say that you had all that practical stuff to do, plus look after your mum and you put your feelings to the back, right? Massively. And it bubbled up. And I, I went on holiday to um, St. Ives, which I've just recently gone back to. But I took, Izzy was then four, and I took her down to St. Ives camping, just me. I was, I must have been bonkers. <laughs> and it was hot. And I just remember sitting in the tent crying and I had pains down my arm and I went out and I'd always had this fantasy of having this breakfast by on the seaside in this one particular restaurant. And I ordered this breakfast and it, it was just, I, I couldn't even eat it. I felt sick. I felt dizzy. Um, I was crying. I drove back home three after three days, uh, trying to explain to a four year old that we need to go back home and I'm crying driving up the M5. I don't know how I got home. 
It was probably dangerous. I don't even know. I don't know how I got home because I was just so hypervigilant. And that's when I thought, I've got to learn this for myself. I've got to, I've got, I can't have this happen. Um, and so I learned all about panic attacks, anxiety, processing grief. And that's when I qualified. That's when I began the process of qualifying. And um, anxiety and panic attacks are one of the biggest things I help people with. And I always sit there and say, I know they're horrible. I've been there. They feel so real. I thought I was going to die. Have you ever had panic attacks or? I have actually, um, quite a while ago. Um, and I, I was completely engulfed in that feeling. I thought, this is it. I'm just going to drop down dead now. They're the most scariest things ever. I know somebody died as well from a panic attack in the street, you know, and, and it's a scary thing, but I'm interested as well. And, and, I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. I can hear how upsetting that was for you. All the years that you did this self-development, working on your depression, anxiety, eating disorders and whatnot, was there any part of that that you were working on your drinking? Was you identifying that as being a problem? Because the reason I say that is that I'm hearing recently quite a lot about big companies refusing that there's an issue with alcohol in the workplace, right? And that they label all these other things and they get all these people in to talk about mental health, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, uh, war veterans go in and talk about PTSD and whatnot. And when I approach them about alcohol, they go, no, it's not an issue with alcohol in the workplace, right? So as you like working through these years and years and years, and now you're a therapist, was there part of you that was still in slight denial that actually the alcohol could have been causing a lot of this? I don't think I realized until I qualified. In fact, I don't think I realized until I properly went sober how much it was impacting even any residual anxiety I felt, because I would have told you I was pretty much sorted compared to how I was in my 20s. Um, But I first wanted to go sober in 2012. So Izzy was only one. And I remember at the time talking to a therapist or coach that I was working with and saying, I want to go sober. I want a sober year. And I set up a blog because Instagram and social media didn't exist. And it was all anonymous. And I lasted five days before caving because the wine witch chatters and it's hard. And I didn't know anyone. There was no community unless you wanted to go and sit in a church hall in an AA meeting, which I had completely in my head discounted for me mm-hmm. at that time. Um, and so it was just, I thought, well, where do I go? Oh, maybe it's not that bad. And I looked to friends for reassurance and they reassured me that now it was fine for goodness sake. It's only a bottle of wine a night. You have nights off, you know, oh, we all do that. And there's that sort of safety in numbers, that security that you look around and you can always find somebody that drinks more than you. And you think, well, I'm okay then. And I think that's the one thing I want to get out there more than anything else is you don't have to be in the gutter. You don't have to be at a rock bottom. You could be having two glasses of wine every three days. But if it's upsetting your system, if you're not sleeping as well, if you've got anxiety from it, if you're feeling low in your life, that's the first thing that needs to be looked at. So yeah, I would say that alcohol was on the list, but every time I tried to tackle it, I felt alone. And I didn't know where to turn until last year when I found sober Instagram and something clicked. 
something just clicked in me. And I'd had a few, there were a couple of sort of mini bumps in the road that I'd had last year. And again, it was no big, great shakes. Um, like the motorhome, we bought the motorhome, which is an amazing thing. And our plan is to travel. And so we booked all these holidays in and all these mini breaks. And with that came more drinking. And we'd started to bicker, which isn't really like us. And I know that because we had a sober year or nearly a sober year when I was pregnant with Charlotte in lockdown. I think we'd probably be dead, both of us, if it wasn't for that, because we would have. I think we just bought this massive box of lager and wine and everything for lockdown. And I find out I was pregnant, which is planned, but it was like, okay, we're doing this sober. And so it was a completely different experience for us than for other people. But we had the best year of our marriage. Um, We had... It was just a, a wonderful experience. So Dale is my third husband. You'll have worked out. <laughs> but he was a drinker as well. And when I when he realized how much it was upsetting me drinking, I mean, we'd had the odd conversation going, we've got to sort this out. We've got to sort this out, mainly instigated by me. Mm. Um, but we were partying too much. We were going on holiday too much. We were drinking too much. And he saw how much it affected me when I tried to stop that that's when he said, okay, let's do this. And he joined me, which is just uh, goosebumps for me because that's exactly how I did my sobriety. I used to say, I need to sort this out. I need to sort this out. I need to sort it out. And then it was January the 7th, 2019. That was it. I was done, you know? So it's important how you described gray area drinking then, because that's so accurate. You, you don't have to be drinking every day or you could be having two glasses of wine with dinner, but every day you could go a month without drinking. But if I were to say to you, well, just stop then. Oh, I can't do that. You know, it, there's a huge space in the middle between having your rock bottoms or your take or leave it. And, and you describe it so well. And it took you 10 years, right? Yeah. So it was 10 years of of trying, of moderating. Oh, I had rules, Dave. I had rules. Um, I bought pretty little glasses for the wine. I just filled it more often. Um, I would, I never successfully managed if I said I was going to have a bottle of wine, because that's what you'd say, isn't it? Oh, I'm going to have a bottle of wine tonight. Mm. You don't say I'm going to have a glass of wine, which maybe I should have. Um, and I think the thing for me as a therapist, I was starting to notice more and more people wanting to talk about alcohol, wanting to talk about moderating or reducing. And I just felt hypocritical. I thought, come on now, you are, I don't, I didn't like feeling inauthentic. I thought you've got to get this sorted or you're sitting in front of people, giving them advice that you're not taking. And also I, I'm somebody that needs to have done it obviously, uh, with the anxiety and panic attacks, I do feel that you you just, you don't have to have been through it as a therapist, but it helps. So I thought, look, you've got to do this now, go sober. And then and the plan was 30 days. That was all it was. Yeah. And that's when the depression really hit. And I did share a lot of that um, on Instagram was that, and all the crying videos that I ever share aren't when I was drinking, I was happy drinking. I got depressed when I started to stop. Um, and that's not a sign to anyone to think that that will happen to them. But it was just that I realized how in control it was. I thought I could walk away from it. And I didn't realize how loud the wine which was. I didn't realize how much the messaging was everywhere. You walk into a supermarket and there's a wall of death 
of alcohol and offers and it's just everywhere. And that was leading up to Christmas as well. So every TV show, every cookery show, everything was pairing wine, even like morning um, breakfast shows. We're talking about alcohol and what are you going to drink with your turkey? And so I'd said, even though we'd already had a couple of months of stopping and starting and stopping and starting, I said, I'm having a drink at Christmas. And I cried. It was the most depressing experience of my life, actually. And, and well, aside from obviously the, the, my father passing away. Um, but it was just, I felt so low. I just felt so helpless and that it had this power over me and I didn't understand it. And I think that's when I thought, well, why isn't this kicking in for you? Why isn't this working for you? And so I took a step back and I imagined myself in a room with me as a therapist and I gave myself a session where I went, okay, what are you going to do differently? And one of my biggest things was that I was approaching it with the wrong mindset, which is just bonkers, given what I do for a living, that I'd allowed myself to come into this experience or this journey with the wrong mindset. Um, I was hoping it would work. And I just thought, hang on a minute, I've heard of not getting confident, not getting overconfident, but that's to do with not fantasizing about moderating. I can be confident that I'm staying sober. That's the key. So I did. I just approached it with this confidence. I said it was going to be for a year. It's going to be for a lifetime. I know that. But I signed up, I think, to one year no beer. And I just, I know it's, I know it's for good now. There's just, I've lost two and a half stone. I feel amazing. I feel like I've returned to who I should have been before that happened to me as a child, being told that I was too much. And if I'm too much now for people, tough. Well, you, you certainly don't sound too much at all. You sound really leveled, balanced and in control of your life. And it's interesting how you describe that as well. And I look at alcohol like the school bully. I was scared of it. So mm. I tried a couple of times to stop and it bullied me because my mindset wasn't there. Right. And then so the day that I stopped, I thought I've got to stand up to this bully. And I've also got to be mindful that there will be fading bias effect. So when you separate with someone in the beginning, it's great, isn't it? But then you start to think, oh, missing a bit. And was it that bad? And maybe I could meet for a coffee and that. And eventually you you go and meet them and then back in bed and then you wake up. Nothing's changed. Sometimes it can be worse. So it's about being mindful about that part of it, romanticising alcohol, because you've got all these adverts, as you say, and you're in the tube station, there's pictures of swimming pools abroad where all these perfect size 10 women and male models are sipping Campari and it all looks so amazing, you know, everywhere you look and you think, oh, maybe I'm not that bad. My friends tell me I'm not that bad. And, you know, you're feeling better because you've had a few days or weeks off and you get tricked again. So I always say you have to have a plan, right? Planning is everything because a lot of people go, I see how it goes, right? So there's not the full commitment there. What you did, you said, you know what? All your experiences were all trials. And this is why I say to people, you know, if you slip up, brush yourself down again, 
start again, right? Because you can learn from this rather than go, oh, I can't do it. You know, I'm back on the hamster wheel. It's like, keep trying. And you're proof of that because you tried for 10 years, right? Yeah, 10 years try, 10 years trying to moderate, 10 years with rules. And I found a journal from, because I've always journaled, um, and I found a journal from 2016 or 17. And in it, I, I'm writing like, alcohol-free this week. I'm going alcohol-free in the week, four nights at least. Never achieved it because, let's face it, alcohol is a highly addictive, highly toxic drug. Mm. And I'm not naive. I like to think I'm switched on. But I hadn't put two and two together. And because I think also it, it does upset me sometimes to see on social media, I see loved ones and friends and all they're doing is posting pictures of an alcoholic drink. And it's like, but there's so much more to that experience than what you've got in your glass. But that's the sign. And I've done it. No judgment. I've done it a plenty. I've had to go through my social media and delete old photos of me cheersing with a whatever it is, glass of wine or Prosecco. Prosecco was my downfall. But don't you think that when we were drinking, we didn't know anything more than that, right? So, like, we know the other side of the fence now, right? So we can see the benefits of not drinking without being preachy. I I would hate it if I ever came across as preachy, right? Yeah, same here. Yeah, but we see that. But when we're in it, I've been guilty of saying, you're not drinking, you boring old git, blah, blah, mm. blah, blah, blah. But now, if I see someone drunk around me, I think that's boring. And that, again, without being preachy, but you move on, don't you? And it's it's fascinating life. When, when you look back at your experiences, and also, there's a good chance that at that time we weren't ready. And that's okay, because that's still part of this as you know, I'm going to start using journey now because I can't, I can't keep explaining it. But it's it's part of that journey of learning from it, getting back up again. That's why journaling is so good. And you say you found that journal right. You can look back a bit like I always say about Columbo. I love Columbo by the way. But he gets his notebook out and he skips back, and it's all in front of him, right? Yeah. And you can think, Do you know what? Actually, this year I've had this many days without drinking and compared to last year, that's a real progression forward. Right. And and that's okay. You can do it like that. And eventually one day you go, I'm done. And I did that. I got the, um, I think it was the try dry app. Mm. Somebody recommended. And so right at the very start, I kept two um, dual day counts going. So I had um, like the day count of how many days I'd done in total. And I still have that. I still, not that I, I, I'm caring less and less now about the day count because I really do feel like this is a lifestyle choice. And I know a lot of people don't have that choice. And I think to be honest, if I'd have carried on, I wouldn't have had that choice. Um, I could feel I had really brewing health concerns. Um, I would bruise so easily. And I woke up this one morning with this massive bruise on my leg. And I couldn't remember doing it. And it wasn't because I was drunk. It's just that I would have just knocked into something. Mm. And I looked up on Google, um, bruising and liver, because I knew that it was somehow linked. And of course, it's about blood clotting and alcohol's a blood thinner. And yeah, I, I don't bruise like that now. I whacked my leg the other day and I was 
boasting to my husband that I didn't have a bruise. I really hurt myself. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have a bruise at all, which shows what was scaring me were things like my IBS, which I haven't had at all since stopping drinking. So you can excuse, we, we excuse so much when it comes to alcohol. Oh, it can't be the alcohol. Sometimes we brag, mm. don't we? Yeah. Like, done oh my that. God, look at this. I fell down the stairs. You know, yeah. I, I know people have died from that now. Yeah. Drunk, where they've fallen down and broke their neck. You know, honestly, um, with the job I do, I hear some horrific things. I really do. And, oh, that's a whole different conversation. But um, when you stopped, did you have much resistance from your friends or were they really fully on board with you? I had a little bit of teasing from one person. But I mean, when I wanted to moderate I, or, or wanted to stop for that 10 years, I was so easily swayed and I was surrounded by people. I remember talking to one friend who I really looked up to and really respected their opinion. And they just went, oh, for goodness sake, a bottle of wine a night's not bad. And I went, oh, okay, then Yeah, I've got permission. Um, I didn't get, I've got, again, a very good friend now who um, she herself is dabbling with a little bit of sobriety, you know, cutting down, not drinking in the week. And and she was so supportive because although she did drink um, and does drink, she was just, I think you're amazing. I just think you're amazing. And I was, I I filmed a video on the day that I decided enough was enough where I was crying. And I, I said, to myself, I just feel like a bad mother. Um, as somebody who's just had a baby, uh, I just feel like I'm potentially not even going to be around to see. It was a real fear that drove this final push for me. And I didn't have a health scare, but I was scared of my health. Mm. Um, and you know, a lot of these things, I watched a documentary, um, Adrian Child's documentary, Drinkers Like Me, and that encouraged me to start counting units, um, which scares me. Now I look back on it and I encourage anybody to do that. Start counting because you don't know if you don't count. But I watched this documentary and he he interviewed somebody who suddenly went into liver failure. And I thought, well, I thought you'd get a warning. I thought, you know, maybe the doctor would have a word with you where you go a bit yellow or I didn't realize, you know, you get a stomach pain and you'd be rushed to A&E and bang, that's it. Your liver's failed uh, or you're in liver failure. And she said if she'd have realized her drinking was going to bring her here, there's no way she'd have done it. I mean, she can't drink now. When I thought, well, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Because you get to that point and you're not allowed to drink anyway. So at some point, is it not better for it to be your choice that you don't drink? And I'm stubborn and I didn't, I don't like being told what to do. It's why I work for myself. Oh God, do you know what? I remember having to go to the doctors. I think I was 50. And it was like a new thing they brought out as an MOT, basically, a men's health MOT, right? And I was bricking it. And I went there and I had a blood test and all these different tests at the hospital. For a week, I was like sleepless nights because I was thinking, what is it going to come back as, right? And it, it came back with high blood pressure and high cholesterol. That And I went, is that it? Is that, is that okay? Like, like... And it, yeah, you need to book an appointment so you can work out how to reduce your cholesterol and blood pressure, right? At that time, I thought, oh, that's all right, I can carry on drinking. Mm. That was my mindset then, because if they'd said there's an issue with your liver, which I thought it would be, 
I'd have panicked. But because I, it was just my high blood pressure and high cholesterol, which was <laughs> a condition from my heavy drinking anyway, poor yeah. food choices, terrible sleep, anxiety, the up and down neurotransmitters, you know, but that, that was a, oh, you can carry on then. And it's crazy. Honestly, there's a video on YouTube that I send my clients quite often and it's called what alcohol does to the body. Right. And it's 30 minutes long and it's fascinating how many areas of your body alcohol affects. Honestly. Oh, it's nuts. And one of the things I did was I read and read and read and read. I love reading. I love educating myself. And I read Professor David Nutt. Mm. I read William Porter. I mean, oh. Sober Dave's book. (laughs) Yeah, Sober Dave's book, obviously. (laughs) Just read and read and read. And the more I educated myself as to what it was doing, it just, I thought, why have I been doing this? Why is this not, why do people think it's okay to do this? Why did I think it was okay to do this? Surely we need to balance, and I mean, it is a Goliath, the alcohol industry, mm. but there's got to be some balance in there that stops grey area drinkers getting quite poorly or worse, thinking that they're just, they're okay, yeah. they'll be fine. And everyone around them as well thinking they're fine. So there's this whole enabling going on where you're all encouraging each other that you're all right, you're okay. But basically you're holding a mirror up to them going, oh, well, that's what I drink and I feel all right. You know, there's this whole spiral of people encouraging each other. And I did it myself. Come on, mate, it's just a few beers. What are you talking about? You know, because if they're not drinking, it shines a mirror on you drinking. Do you know what I mean? So it's join me for this drink because I feel uncomfortable if not. You know, I've so lost I think, friends. Yeah, yeah, I have lost friends. You did, you know, and, and I think I have lost the invites, some of the invites from people I have lost. But do you think that you would have, if that if that medical that you had, had come back saying there was an issue with your liver, do you think you would have stopped? Um, I think it would have made me really look at it because if they said, you know, you've got the start of cirrhosis of the liver or you've already got scarring, I think at that stage of 50 years old, I realised I had a massive problem because I'd just come back off the back of 10 years of solitary drinking. The fact I didn't receive those things saying that I had liver problems because I was drinking a litre of vodka a night, I have no idea. Do you know what I mean? I have no idea how it didn't show up with that. And it scares me now, Louisa, that, you know, have I got issues with that and I just don't know I feel healthy and I live a healthy life but if there's scarring you can't reverse that you know so that is always a fear at the back of my mind and I'm too scared to even look for that like go for a test because I'm just living my life the best way I can but to answer your question I think the fact that that come up okay did give me the green light to carry on which is still ludicrous because you would think that the high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and the doctor said, you know, it's enough for you to have a stroke or heart attack wow. should be enough. So it's about being real, isn't it? I'm sure people listening to this, there may be some going, well, I'm okay because I only have a couple of glasses of wine here and there, or I only drink at weekends. Yeah, it might be a couple of bottles of wine, but I, I take a break in a week. It kind of justifies it being as okay-ish. Mm. 
And, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's we normalize it so much. I normalized it so much. I encouraged people to drink more. Um, I mean, you talk about mummy wine culture. I would have play dates and we would be safely sipping Prosecco um, at these play dates, kids parties. And I look at it now and what upsets me, I think, is this idea of sharing reels, funny reels about drinking a bottle of wine in a glass. And the doctor said one glass of wine a day and things like that. And you just think, okay, I'm not a killjoy. I've got a sense of humor, but that is normalizing really excessive drinking and making it funny in adverted commas, but that could encourage somebody in that gray area to go, well, I'm fine. But you know, that whole um, lockdown was just dreadful for, for drinking, you know, and I've said before, I've known people to be blowing their cup, pretending it's hot tea when it's actually wine, Zoom meetings and, and stuff, you know, and the weather was incredible. And, and there was a, house party i think was the latest app and people sharing things like everyone was on holiday they didn't have any responsibility you know it's kick back and enjoy but it was after that year after when things like zooms come on and you had meetings and that and people have think god i feel like a glass of wine at two o'clock i never used to feel like that yeah and that's why i'll say it's like poison ivy where it wraps itself around your toe and then spreads it's got you around the neck and, and then it's so hard to move away from um, so how many months are you now sober? So I'm just about to celebrate six months continuous sobriety. Um, I've been obviously doing it for 10 years, uh, unsuccessfully. Um, but I just know that this shift has happened. And I think sometimes people are quite shocked when they realize I've only been sober six months because it's just not, this isn't fading effect bias. I just do not have any wish to yeah. drink. And the, the wine, which will still whisper, um, we've been on a lot of holidays uh, because of the motorhome. And one of those holidays was over a bank holiday in the UK. And oh, can't we drink us Brits? We really can drink. I was sat by the pool and I was looking at these glasses going past me and thinking, wouldn't it be? And I just stop it, stop it in that second. No, it wouldn't be nice. It wouldn't be nice. It wouldn't be one. I'd feel sleepy. It's hot. I'm dehydrated anyway. Why would I do that? Then I'd drink tonight. Then the whole holiday's ruined. And we went on holiday with moderate drinkers. So that was a whole new experience because I then sat there going, well, look at them. And they, I mean, they are proper moderate drinkers. You're talking the unit count that the government recommend moderation. And very healthy marathon running, you know, really fit, fantastic people. And they'll have a half. I don't I even yeah. know. <laughs> I, uh, I don't understand it. Obviously, there are people around there, but I'm only judging it off the back of what I'm like. You know, mm. I, I can't do that um, at all. Hence why I, I don't even entertain moderation. It's not even in the equation. No, uh, and it isn't for me. And I did actually, do you know what I did? Um, and, and I love them dearly. And um I did look and I thought, do you know what? There's still too many decisions you have to make. Even if you could do that moderation to that level and it not be a problem for you, you'd still have to think, well, when am I going to drink? What am I going to drink? How much am I going to drink? When am I going to stop? I don't know if that's the case though, right? Because I always look at it like, say, for instance, I'm not a gambler, right? 
So I can really take or leave gambling. And you might yeah. say to me, oh, it's a derby on Saturday and I've got a bit of a tip for you. And I might think, all right then. So I, I go in the betting shop and put a bet on. I wouldn't even think about going in there again unless someone gave me a solid tip. And I think possibly that's like it with people who drink like that because I can take or leave, say, a cup of tea or something. Or, you know, it, it's it's I don't need it. So I can not obsess over it so maybe we judge it off the back of how we are that we have to always think about the drink side of it i I might be wrong but i just think that when it's not an issue for someone it genuinely is a take or leave it thing but for us we have one and it's like guns blazing it's like okay that's that's me drinking now I've got to finish the bottle of wine. And, and the dangerous thing with lockdown is what that one bottle of wine went into have one out of the second bottle just for a nightcap. And then before they knew it, it was like two bottles of wine, you know? So for me, it's it's an all or nothing thing. And for a lot of the people that work with me, it's all or nothing. You have to make that decision. And another thing that I want to add as well, sorry for rambling, but it's when you said I'm only six months sober, this has been 10 years of getting to where you are and you've learned so much. And I really want people to hear this, that it's not always about the amount of time of sobriety. It's the whole picture of learn from your mistakes, get up, be positive, self-compassion. Don't beat yourself up. You know, this is a really difficult thing to do. And we're up against it because of what you said about it's absolutely everywhere. It's in your face, wherever you go. It's the only drug we have to justify not having as well, you know. And it's really difficult, but keep trying. And you're the perfect example of that hard work. So the six months is off the back of all that time that you've worked so hard. Um, Thank you. That really is lovely to hear because obviously – you look at all these people with years under their belt and even the idea of me writing a book about early sobriety and resetting um, because I'm so fresh in it and I wanted to share something. I'm a writer anyway. My head's racing anyway. I put all of that energy into a project um, and it just came together. Um, But it was just, I wanted to be able to share that it isn't always just one decision and bang, you're sober. Because I think Instagram and things, I was thinking, right, well, they're two years sober and they're 18 months sober. And people are quite quiet at the start. They don't really like to say anything until they've hit a certain point. And and that's, I just think we should all be shouting from the first day. I think one day, one hour where you say no to a drink is fantastic. And people love to hear people like yourself at the beginning, because that's what they identify to. They relate to you. You know, you're a woman, a grey area drinker, you're six months sober, and there are women that go, and men as well. You know, there are men grey area drinkers. Oh, my God, she's done so well in this period. I want to do exactly the same. I want to learn by her. And and it's refreshing. You know, that's why I don't get people on that are always 10 years sober or they're a celebrity. I, I like real people that can tell real story that people can identify to and go, do you know what? I want some of that. And I think on this podcast today, you've, you've given that. So thank you. And before we go as well, for anyone listening, what advice or tips can you give to them to 
explore this route that you've taken? I would say connect with other sober people, follow sober accounts, um, make sober friends, get a sober accountability buddy, get a coach like yourself, um, get therapy like from me. Um, but it's, it's a case of don't just assume this is not, this is not just about not drinking. This is about dealing with why you drank and what you're trying to deal with. And so you'll be peeling back layers of an onion in this process. And so get the support that you need. If that's from a friend, a family member, I would also say that never underestimate how much you can self-sabotage and approach it with confidence that you can do it. You know, don't, don't believe your own inner voice that says this is going to be, it is tough. I'm not saying it's not tough, but just go, look, I can do anything. You wouldn't run a marathon and hope you could finish it. So just go, look, I can do this. If that person can do it, I can do it. And just come at it with confidence. And for me, I created, I shouted it from the rooftops. I'll tell the people in the supermarket. My daughter does as well. My my 12-year-old is constantly telling people all the time that I'm sober. She's so proud. And I created this identity, this sober Louisa. I, I have no wiggle room with that now. I can't turn around and have a glass of wine now. And that's that's been my safety net. That's amazing. And it's brilliant what you said about the marathon. I use that as an example. I'm very visual in that. And I say to people, you have to train for it, right? And your 10 years was your training. And again, yeah. this is why I say to people, you know, if if you slip, get up and start again. Don't beat yourself up. Self-compassion. It's always self-compassion, right? Because you get there. But if you're going to beat yourself up and say to yourself, limiting beliefs, you know, like, I just can't do it. I'm never going to be that person or whatever you know, the high chances you, you won't be. So you're right. Connect with positive Instagram, Facebook accounts, read, listen to podcasts, you know, even watch documentaries on YouTube and that on addiction. Education is so important. As you say, work with a coach, work with a therapist to deal with the, the bigger T's, you know, get self-development in place, you know, like e- even how to uh, meditate or to find something different to turn the volume down. You know, we always talk about overthinking and feeling overwhelmed, right? We need to find something else to be able to manage that rather than alcohol. And that's the the key to this. Rather than sit there biting your fingernails, white knuckling, going, oh, my God, I don't know how to deal with it. It's like be proactive and find something that works for you, you know? That's so true. And and actually, this was part of the hypocrisy I felt because I do obviously use hypnotherapy in my clinic. And hypnotherapy is just deep, deep relaxation. So it's very meditative. It's very restorative. It uses the autonomic nervous system in your favor. And there I was going home after a busy clinic, mm. mentally and emotionally exhausted and having a glass of wine. And I should have been, I mean, I, I'm admittedly, you don't always want to do what you do in your day job the minute you get home, but I should have been meditating and or doing hypnotherapy. Yeah, I know. And and it's like when you stop, it, you have to fill the void. I always say that. Find something to fill the void. You know, I know people who do jigsaw puzzles, you know, find something to do. Distract yourself is very Distraction. And then yeah. like the house of cards, the more rows you build up, the more you don't want to kick them over. And then before you know it, you're a month. Before you know it, you're two months. 
people start to say, oh, you look great. Have you lost a little bit of weight? That doesn't always happen, but that's not a priority. Honestly, that's a whole other conversation as well. But, it, you know, concentrate on on the stopping drinking, but you have more energy, you have more ability to be a parent, you're more present, you know, with yourself and your family. And I, I think as a parent, I'm more patient and I'm just, I'm doing things. So I'm doing things with the kids I wouldn't have done. I'm, you know, when we go away, um, we went away the one time and we went for a walk on the beach at half eight at night. Yeah, and my that. daughter asked me if we could, and I was instead of going, oh, you know, let's just have the barbecue. Let's yeah, just. Yeah. I went, come on then, everybody, get your shoes on, let's go. And I just felt like the best mum in the world because alcohol erodes your pride in yourself, your confidence in yourself. It's constantly making you lie to yourself. Um, it's letting you down when you say you're not going to drink, and then you still have a drink. It's chipping away constantly at you and then in sobriety it's like the the total opposite happens Mm. all of these things build back up and you make great decisions and you're making better decisions and I've been through some tough times in sobriety I had a real like rug pull um moment in my second month of sobriety that would normally have seen me drink and that's how I can feel quite steady in it because I didn't I didn't drink at that point and if I can get through that I can get through anything and it's better. Alcohol never adds anything positive. No, it doesn't. Louisa, thank you so much for joining me today. You've been amazing. And I think this podcast has helped so many. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, okay. Well, I will see you soon. Look after yourself. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.